0: To, uh, John chapter 16. I'm going to start reading where we were this morning, verse 12, and read to the end of the chapter, John 16. Our text is verses 23 to 28. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. A little while and you will... No longer see me, and again a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while, and you'll not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father, so they were saying, What is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together? About this, that I said, A little while, and you'll not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy. That a child has been born into the world. Therefore you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going into the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you're speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming. And I was already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Once again, Lord, we turn our attention unto you as you speak to us in your word, even as we uh, tonight will meditate on what it is that you uh, do to us, in us, through your word and what responsibilities that places upon us, Lord. We ask that the Holy Spirit, who inspired these words that we have just read, will fulfill that ministry that Christ promises here and will make them clear to us. Teach us, Lord. And we ask that tonight your word will be preached in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And we pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. may be seated. So boys and girls, young people, I'm sure that most of you know the story of Mephibosheth. Seth was the son of Jonathan, and he was lame in both feet, and he was uh, uh, kind of languishing. He thought of himself basically as an outcast because of his grandfather, Saul, who had uh, persecuted David for all of those years. But David, because of the covenant that he had with Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, asked, Is there a descendant of Jonathan whom, for Jonathan's sake, I might do good. And they told him about Mephibosheth. Now, he summoned Mephibosheth into his presence, and Mephibosheth was greatly frightened, thinking, well, my grandfather was the enemy of this man who persecuted him. But David surprised him. And because of the covenant between David and Jonathan, uh, David restored all of Mephibosheth's property. But more importantly he admitted Mephibosheth into his family circle. He allowed Mephibosheth to come and eat with him at his table. Now that is a a beautiful picture of what God uh, has done and is doing for us in the covenant. He has brought us into a communion, and as we ate at his table this morning, has brought us to eat at his table In fact, what we have here tonight in our text about uh, the privilege of communion with God is kind of the climax of the whole story of redemption. We're going to look at the two aspects of communion with God. Adam and Eve had those aspects in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God revealed himself to them and they were able to respond to God in a life of fellowship, of, of conversation, of true communion. Now, when they sinned, they were cast out of the garden, which picture for the fact that now that communion, that fellowship, was broken. All the rest of Scripture is simply moving toward the, the fullness of that that we see in Revelation. But step by step, periodically, God was moving closer to his people Uh, and engaging them in communion with himself. And we know the early covenant. We just read of the covenant with Abraham and Isaac. But particularly as he delivered them from Egypt, he delivered them to be a people of his own possession. And he dwelt in their midst in that glorious cloud, and he led them. But then, as he was leading them in the wilderness, you'll remember he constructed a tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, there was the holy place and the holiest place. And God symbolically now dwelt in the holiest place to show that he now was in the midst of his people. Moses was his mediator. He would speak to the people through Moses. And through Moses and the priesthood, they could speak uh, to God. And then the tabernacle became permanent and the uh, glorious temple that David longed to build, but that Solomon built for God. But still, in that temple, we could say that God was two rooms removed from the people. Now, what we have tonight in our text is the fact that uh, all the barriers have been broken down. And God is not two rooms removed. God's not keeping us at arm's length. God, in fact, is in a personal and intimate relationship, uh, communion with us in this special privilege of communion that the Savior describes now in uh, John chapter 16. And here, uh, the Holy Spirit's teaching us that on the basis of the perfect work of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, uh, the Christian has sweet communion with God. On the basis of the perfect work of Christ, through or by the Holy Spirit, the Christian has sweet communion with God. We're going to look at the uh, privilege of communion and the basis of that privilege of communion. Well, we begin with this privilege of communion. Jesus has been, again, showing them that he's leaving first temporarily. He's going to come back, and they're going to have uh, joy in his presence. Uh, But now he says, of a particular day, in that day, you'll not question me about anything. Truly I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, He will give it to you. In verse 23, Jesus basically in this promise uh, sets out for us the two principal aspects of communion. And that is uh, the one revealing himself to the other and the response of the one who has received that revelation. So in this sense, it's God revealing himself to us and our responding to to God. That's really what communion is, you understand. It's just as in our marriages, that's what communion is. It's communication. It's husband speaking to wife, wife responding to husband, wife speaking to husband, husband responding to wife. And when that is a good and open um, channel of communication, then there is sweet communion that takes place between them. So Christ delineates, sets out these two aspects of communion. Now, the first is a clear and perfect communication, a clear and perfect communication. And this really builds on what we had this morning in the last hour. He says, in that day, you will not question me about anything. You see how that picks up on uh, what he said to them um, uh, earlier in the chapter. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So Christ is speaking about a day when they will no longer need to ask him questions. Even now, as he's as he's talking, he realizes, as we read in the reading, that they wanted to ask him, what in the world is he talking about? In verse 19, Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And so he anticipates something of that question. And. Um, But in that day, and we know we're talking now about the day of Pentecost, in that day, and it's also referred to as in that hour, in verse uh, 25, uh, you will not need to question me about anything. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. You think about his ministry, we often wrongly think of parables as illustrative devices. They weren't. When you understood a parable, it became a good memory device. But the purpose of parable in the first place was to conceal the truth so that those in whom the Spirit was at work would go tug on Jesus' sleeve, so to speak, and ask him what in the world are you talking about? Explain the parable to us. And so uh, he spoke often in parables and in enigmas. We refer this morning to, to John chapter 6 and telling them they have to eat his body and drink his blood. That would be enigmatic uh, to them as we see. And in fact, because of that, many left him and would no longer walk with him. So he, he used these devices. He He kept things concealed. He held back things, as we saw uh, this morning, because they weren't ready for them. But he said that Pentecost, which we also talked about this morning, which is this great um, mountain divide, continental divide of Scripture, where uh, now all the promises with respect to the Messiah and the Spirit are being fulfilled on that day when the Spirit is poured out on the church. And the Spirit now is going to become uh, the teacher of the church. And so this morning again, we uh, worked how that happens. First, the Spirit would illumine the apostles and uh, reveal to them all that Jesus said and did, all that it meant, all the Old Testament meant, what the church needed to know now to organize itself. And then by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that all was put together uh, in our scriptures, uh, but for them, uh, it came slowly. Even after the resurrection, Jesus spent those forty days with them, and he was speaking to them now more clearly, uh, teaching them particularly about the nature of the atonement and and things like that. But it was only at Pentecost that, in a sense, the scales were removed because the Spirit now given to the church and to each individual who is born again becomes the teacher. The teacher, first, as we said this morning, of the disciples and the early followers of Christ, and then through Scripture, the teacher of any of us who are in Christ. So John writes in 1 John two twenty seven: As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and not a lie, just as he taught you, you abide in him. So the Spirit now is the one who's going to be teaching us of Christ, of the work of Christ, of all that we need to know and do um, through the Scriptures. And this is, in a sense, we could say stage one of this privilege of communion, a, a clear and perfect communication of the mind of God. And that's what you have in your Bible. A clear and perfect communication of the mind of God. Now, what are you to do with it? Well, you're to know it. You are to study it. And you are to mature in your grasp of it. So what does the writer of the Hebrews say in Hebrews chapter 5? Concerning him, and this is Jesus and Melchizedek, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, he's talking to the congregation, not talking to the office bearers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now here's the challenge that the Holy Spirit is going to, is making to you tonight. What kind of hearer are you? What kind of reader are you? Are you still in the pablum of Scripture, though you have been in Christ for a number of years? Are are you by God's grace regularly feeding and growing in your mature grasp of the truth of God by which then your moral senses are trained by the Holy Spirit uh, as a gymnast trains, that's the idea of the word here, and you know how to make good moral decisions each day of your life. So if this is a privilege of communion, this clear and perfect communication, then you have a responsibility, don't you? And your responsibility is to listen. Just as a a husband needs to listen to his wife, and sometimes we don't do a very good job of that, you need to listen to the Spirit of Christ speaking to you. Now, how do you listen? Well, you must become a theologian. That simply means you must be a person who knows the Word of God. You must not be content that you are reading devotional books. No, you must be one who is in the Word learning to meditate and study in Scripture. So that you are growing in your grasp of the truths of the Word of God and what they mean for you in your life. If you need help with that, you speak to your pastor or one of the elders. But you get out of the devotional book. I'm not saying you have to not use it, but you need to go beyond that. Uh, You need to uh, be wading deeply in the scriptures to the degree that the Holy Spirit has given you understanding. Uh, I often recommend you use Matthew Henry. You come across something you don't understand. Use cross-references and, and begin to plumb a passage and to meditate on what's being said there. You need to know your confession of faith in your catechisms. because As I said this morning, here is the, the categories for us. Um, and as you know those truths and then you read Scripture and, and know the, those, those documents and the Scripture proofs, and then you come to Scripture and you're building... Uh, a vocabulary as well as a grasp to understand. And then you need to be reading Christian books of theology and practical theology and and deep devotional books uh, that challenge your mind and your heart. And then above all, you must sit under the preaching of the Word of God regularly, uh, seeking there to hear... God, by the Spirit, communicate to you. That is step one of communion, a clear, accurate, perfect communication of the mind of God so that you know the mind of God and then as you're faced with various uh, decisions that you must make, you're growing in the wisdom of God and by God's grace, you increasingly will make wise decisions and that's very important for you older young people. So that's that's the first half of communion, the, the clear and perfect communication, and then the second half is a uh, a clear and perfect access. So the response you you hear in communion communication. So God has spoken. Now we read of the response again in verse uh, twenty three. In that day, you will question me about anything. Truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father anything in my name, he will give it to you. What an amazing promise. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. Go back to our illustration of the temple. God is two rooms removed. And Although we know that the Old Testament saints prayed, the Psalms are full of their prayers, and we read of the prayers of Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Nehemiah and others. Um, We also read of this heartbrokenness that David had when he was in exile, cut off from the tabernacle where Calvin gave what I referred to the other day as these ladders to God. Um, And you, you were coming then through this priestcraft, this God-appointed priestly system, and though you, you prayed and you could pray with confidence, there, there was a sense, though, of distance, so to speak. And what Jesus is saying here now is the distance has been completely removed. He says that the time now is, if you ask the Father anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. He tells us now that the lines of communication are completely open and we come boldly and freely into the presence of God in the same way the high priest could only once a year go into the Holy of Holies. You, every time you pray, may enter into heaven itself, into the Holy of Holies, in this sweet communion with God. And we do so because we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, our larger catechism is very helpful here in its exposition of the Lord's Prayer in questions 180 and 181. What is it to pray in the name of Christ? To pray in the name of Christ is in obedience to his command and in confidence on his promises to ask mercy for his sake, not by a mere mentioning of his name, but by drawing our encouragement to pray and our boldness strength and hope of acceptance in prayer from Christ and his mediation why are we to pray in the name of Christ the sinfulness of man and his distance from god by reason thereof being so great is that we can have no access into his presence without a mediator and there being none in heaven or earth appointed to or fit for that glorious work but christ alone We're to pray in no other name, but his only. So it's not that we don't need a mediator. We just don't need a human mediator. We don't need a Moses. We don't need a priest. We have our perfect high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself, as we saw uh, Friday night, has entered into the Holy of Holies on our behalf, is seated there as prophet, priest, and king, and as priest king is there guaranteeing our entrance into the Father's presence. Now, of course, he is praying for us as the intercessor. But what he's saying here is now that we need no human intercessor. What we need now is to own him as the perfect intercessor, and we come to the Father and pray in his name. That's why we say it. Now, you don't even always have to say uh, in Jesus' name but that must be the heart attitude, which is much more important that it's your heart attitude than words that are on your tongue or lips. That we consciously are coming into the presence of the thrice-holy triune God boldly, as we read here, confidently, because we're coming through Christ, the perfect mediator. And here he sets before us the The beauty and the joy of prayer. Notice how he ends that great promise. Uh, You've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. God delights in giving to us these things that we pray for as they're according to his will. He delights as we love to have our children uh, climb up in our lap and ask us for something and if it's a proper thing how we delight to give that to them or, or to our grandchildren because we're going to see God loves you and God then delights to hear you pray and to answer your prayers and in that in your comprehension of that is a glorious joy which Speaks to you of the joy of prayer. Do you have joy in prayer? Prayers work. I understand that. But do you have joy in prayer? Do you have joy in this two-way street then of communication? So uh, you are praying over the scriptures as you're reading them. And they're bringing to mind items of praise and thanksgiving, uh, confession and petition. And so actually in your morning devotions... Uh, there is this conversation that's taking place, isn't it? That God is speaking to you by the Spirit, through the Word, with clear and perfect communication, and you, with clear access now, are responding. Having a conversation with God? Does that not give you joy? And when the flesh does draw back from prayer, and it does, and... How many times is it, is it the appointed time for prayer and suddenly you think, well, I need to answer this email or I need to do this or that, and you know what happened? Uh, prayer time has gone. Time allotted is gone. And that's because the flesh still draws back. But when these times happen, remind yourself what Christ has done so you can be the adopted child of God so that you can come boldly and freely into his presence. And look at prayer then as a privilege and a joy. And not a duty. Build it then into your life, along with your Bible study, with set times, with some formula that you're going to use, where you cover the outline of prayers that's given to us uh, in the Lord's Prayer, and so that you are, as you come to God, praising and thanking and confessing and praying for sanctification and for for various petitions. Um, and develop that habit of prayer. It's important as parents that we work with even our littlest children. This is part of what family worship does, but also, and this was a place, and actually I've learned this from others. We learned as we went, but um, I had one friend that would, uh, you know, we'd have his boys as they were older. They would sit in the room where he was, and they'd be reading their Bible. Or, you know, I, I would ask my children if they've read the Bible, but I didn't get into the conversation. Well, tell me about what you read. Tell me what you're praying about. You see, we need to train them in that way. So we want them to do it. We teach them how to do it, but then we want ourselves in communion to interact with them about what they're learning, how they're handling scripture, and how they are praying. But, of course, this perfect... Perfect, clear communication takes place above all in corporate worship. See, that's what corporate worship is. It is communion. Communion is not just at the Lord's table. Corporate worship is communion with God and his covenanted saints. It's Mephibosheth being entered in and sat at the table. And that's why we actually order our services in a dialogical format. And I trust all of you by now have caught on to that. If it's not been explained to you, that God speaks and we respond. One writer says A-B-A-B. Now, it's not just always A-B-A-B, but there's going to be God takes the initiative, called to worship. We take a vow in his presence. He greets us. We respond in prayer and, and hymn or psalm of adoration. He reveals his word to us. We confess sin. He assures us of the pardon of sin. You got the idea what's going on? That needs to grip your heart in, in, in public worship. That you're actually corporately now, as well as individually, part of the body, having this communion with God through the communication of God's part, and that's one of the reasons why we want our scripture services, our, our services so full of scripture. Because it's in scripture. In our Old New Testament readings and in the declaration of God's will and in a salutation, a benediction, we're constantly hearing the Spirit of Christ speaking to us with a beautiful and divine authority and simplicity. And then we get to respond. And as you then enter into the prayers and as you sing the psalms and the hymns then you want your heart to be stirred up and realize that yes i'm communing with god i'm responding that's also why we seek to design a service around themes and why even the psalms and hymns that we select you know all of this is building this concept of what's going on here well this is the the privilege of communion that god has granted to us which leads us then to consider, well, what's the basis of this privilege? And it's a bit shocking, isn't it? We read there, uh, in that day, verse 26, you will ask in my name. I do not say that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Let that sink in. We're not talking here, Jesus is not talking about the love of Election. That he placed on us in Christ in eternity. He's talking about what we refer to as a love of complacency. A love in you for who you are. An adopted child of God. The Father loves you. The Father loves you. He's your Father. And he loves you. And because he loves you, he not only is going to open your mind to understand what he's saying to you, but he also then is going to embrace you in this wonderful, glorious, adoptive father love. On behalf of the Godhead, He is going to bring you into his bosom. And he's going to bestow wonderful favors on you as, as if you were the only child he had. He loves you. Now, that means he's also, as we've seen, going to discipline you, but that's always out of love. God never has done a mean thing to any of his children because he loves you. But also because he loves you, he delights in in this communion with you. He takes pleasure in it. He takes pleasure in private communion and he takes pleasure in public communion. He loves you. And then how is it the Father loves us? Well, this leads us then to, on the basis of the perfect work of Christ, as Jesus' then will continue. The Father loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world, and I'm leaving the world again, going to the Father. In the second half of 27, verse 28, he wraps up the entirety of humiliation and exaltation. (laughs) He simply there has summarized uh, what he acted out in the upper room, washing their feet. Uh, Here he summarizes the entirety of being sent into the world, uh, what he did for us in the world, and now leaving the world back into glory. This is why the Father can love you. It's because of the perfect work of Christ, the elder brother. Now, you must believe in him. He says, because you love me and have believed that the Father has sent me. And we see that the the first objects of saving faith are Christ in the fullness of his ministry as prophet, priest, and king in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. And we love him as we contemplate how he loves us and the Father loves us in him. You see it's It's the perfect work of Christ now that guarantees the regular daily sweet communion that you and I have with God and the corporate sweet communion that we enjoy with the triune God. On the basis of the work of Christ, by the Holy Spirit, the Christian enjoys sweet communion with God. He speaks, we listen, we respond in prayer. And we know we do so with confidence because he loves us and delights in us, delights in our fellowship and in our communion. Revel then in this sense of communion. Revel in the reality of who and what you are in Christ Jesus. And live then in light of the privileges that belong to you. And let it not just be Something you do, but anticipate those morning exercises. Relish them. If you miss one, it's not you're going to have a bad day. You're not superstitious about it. No, you simply missed a trysting time with the Father and the triune God who loves you. And so build it carefully into your life and let it develop. Now, if you're not a Christian tonight, or if you're listening out there and you're not a Christian, Surely, as I've spoken about a sweet communion between God and his people, there's been some aching in your heart. You know, this is something that, well, that would be good. But, but you see, you suppress it. You suppress it because you love sin. Uh, the, the, the analogy I can think of is you're a drunk coming off a drunk, and you've got, man, I can have a better life. You know, I, I could really hold down a job and, and have a, a family, and uh, but there's that power of the drink. See, that's where you are tonight, if you're not a Christian. There's been something in you, perhaps the spirit is stirred up. But, man, to have that kind of communion with the true God. But as long as you love sin, as long as you cling to sin, you're not going to come. And so you need to plead with this loving God to have mercy on you. grant you repentance, give you faith to believe in the completed work of Christ. And if you do so, I can guarantee you that you will grow in the realization that you commune with God because the Father loves you. Let us pray. Oh, holy God, we bless your name and we thank you for as Christ brings this discourse to an end, uh, ending where he began, promising us peace because he's overcome the world and will give us the spirit unto that end as you've taught us how to live um, in this age, Lord. May we find great comfort in all these truths, but particularly tonight, be wonderfully encouraged and helped and stimulated and motivated to commune with you in uh, the word in prayer with confidence that you love us. Help us develop this in our children as well. And if there are those, Lord, here or are listening who do not know you as Father, would your spirit even now work in their hearts, break down the barriers of hatred and sin, call them unto yourself. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.